Welcome to the Space Show, presented by members of the Space Association of Australia. Hello, I'm Andrew Rennie. And on this evening's Space Show, we tell the sad story of the peregrine, not the bird, (laughs) but the uh, spacecraft that was supposed to land on the moon. And we have a fully paid up member of the uh, SpaceX Club, <laughs> sorry, Space Association of Australia, just joking, Space Association, Angelo de Grazi will be joining us later in the show to talk things about, well, SpaceX, what else? A private spacecraft called Peregrine One was launched last week to travel to the moon. And last week we told you it was in serious trouble. Yes, very serious trouble. First up, let's hear from Astrobotic, which is the company that was doing this mission, about how it was supposed to travel to the moon, orbit the moon, and then land on the moon. The general trajectory of how this goes is we, we have reserved a flight on the, the Vulcan launch vehicle that's going to fly uh, December 24th. Um, it's going to take off, I think it's 1.50 something in the morning, um, so it'll be an early nighttime flight. Uh, it's going to, to lift off and get us directly into what's called translunar injection. So it will, we will be close to Earth, but on a trajectory that will more or less intersect with the moon's orbit. Um, it's that at that point, and this is within about an hour or so of launch, we're going to separate from the, the launch vehicle, um, and our lander and astrobotics mission begins. And at that point, it's our job to uh, communicate to the spacecraft and to make small trajectory correction maneuvers on the way out. So this will be actually the first time we're firing our engines as a system. Um, we've, of course, fired them individually here on Earth, but this is the first time it's been all together as a spacecraft because you simply can't test that here on Earth. Um, we're going to be doing those maneuvers to, A, learn how to fly the spacecraft, and, B, um, make sure that our trajectory is lined up directly with lunar orbit. Uh, we'll be doing uh, at least one, likely up to, uh, potentially up to three of those trajectory correction maneuvers, and that's dependent on uh, the precision of the, uh, of the initial launch. Now we're going to, uh, when we get close to the moon, um, and this is a few days later, we're going to descend down into lunar orbit. Um, and we're going to start at a high orbit, and Haley will probably know the numbers better than I will, um, so she can follow up uh, with some more detail on that. And then we're going to go to a medium orbit and stay in that orbit for a little while while we wait for the local lighting conditions to align. Um, so we're actually going to get to the moon in just a few days. Most of the time between launch and landing is actually waiting for the local lighting to be correct. So basically we're trying to land at a specific spot on the moon at a specific time, i.e. morning at this location near the Grundheisen domes. Um, and because of that, we have to uh, wait for the moon to rotate all the way around so that sunrise is happening while we're landing. Um, so that, that's why there's a, there's a gap. Um, and then we'll, we will descend down to our lowest orbit. We'll stay the least amount of time in that orbit uh, and then de- uh, start our descent down to the surface. And that last final phase, that will be the real nail biting a wild event um, that we'll be witnessing live here in Pittsburgh at Mission Control Pittsburgh in, at Astrobotic. Uh, and that will be a fully autonomous descent down to the surface of the moon, and we'll be getting all of that data back live. Um, and, uh, and, and hopefully, if all goes well, a, a massive celebration um, down here on Earth as, uh, as, the, as we uh, transmit uh, landing successful. Um, at that point, we're going to be doing checkouts of the spacecraft, making sure everything's safe, and then we're going to turn the spacecraft uh, payloads on one by one um, and begin the, the payload missions. Um, and Haley, maybe you could add some color to some numbers on that. Start with the orbit uh, altitudes and yeah. uh, any, any loitering times. We'll have three lunar orbits. The first is lunar orbit one, which is about approximately 9,000 kilometers by 100 kilometers. And then lunar orbit two, which is our parking orbit, which is approximately 750 kilometers by 100 kilometers. 
And then our third orbit, lunar orbit three, is 100 kilometers by 100 kilometers, and that's the orbit from which we'll start our descent sequence. Well, that was what was intended. First off, they had to delay the launch until, I think it was Monday last week. And then, uh, things got away well. The um, new rocket, the Vulcan, Vulcan Centaur, from United Launch Alliance, worked, by all accounts, perfectly, and plonked perigene in the right place, in the right trajectory, but soon after the separation, they pressurized the propellant systems on the peregrine, and things went wrong from there. Well, I've used an auto-reader to read the press releases that were made by Astrobotic over the following few days. Peregrine blog, January 8th, update 1. After successfully separating from United Launch Alliance's Vulcan rocket, Astrobotics Peregrine Lunar Lander began receiving telemetry via the NASA Deep Space Network. Astrobotic built avionics systems, including the primary command and data handling unit, as well as the thermal, propulsion, and power controllers, all powered on and performed as expected. After successful propulsion systems activation, Peregrine entered a safe operational state. Unfortunately, an anomaly then occurred, which prevented Astrobotic from achieving a stable sun-pointing orientation. The team is responding in real time as the situation unfolds and will be providing updates as more data is obtained and analyzed. Update 2. We continue to gather data and report our best assessment of what we see. The team believes that the likely cause of the unstable sun pointing is a propulsion anomaly that, if proven true, threatens the ability of the spacecraft to soft land on the moon. As the team fights to troubleshoot the issue, the spacecraft battery is reaching operationally low levels. Just before entering a known period of communication outage, the team developed and executed an improvised maneuver to reorient the solar panels toward the sun. Shortly after this maneuver, the spacecraft entered an expected period of communication loss. We will provide more updates as Peregrine comes in view of the ground station again. Update 3. We have successfully re-established communications with Peregrine after the known communication blackout. The team's improvised maneuver was successful in reorienting Peregrine's solar array towards the sun. We are now charging the battery. The Mission Anomaly Board continues to evaluate the data we're receiving and is assessing the status of what we believe to be the root of the anomaly, a failure within the propulsion system. We are grateful for the outpouring of support we're receiving, from messages on social media to phone calls and helping hands. This is what makes the space industry so special, that we unite in the face of adversity. A heartfelt thank you from the entire Peregrine Mission 1 team. Update 4. Unfortunately, it appears the failure within the propulsion system is causing a critical loss of propellant. The team is working to try and stabilize this loss, but given the situation, we have prioritized maximizing the science and data we can capture. We are currently assessing what alternative mission profiles may be feasible at this time. Update 5. We've received the first image from Peregrine in space. The camera utilized is mounted atop a payload deck and shows multi-layer insulation, MLI, in the foreground. The disturbance of the MLI is the first visual clue that aligns with our telemetry data pointing to a propulsion system anomaly. Nonetheless, the spacecraft's battery is now fully charged, and we are using Peregrine's existing power to perform as many payload and spacecraft operations as possible. At this time, the majority of our Peregrine mission team has been awake and working diligently for more than 24 hours. We ask for your patience as we reassess incoming data so we can provide ongoing updates later this evening. Update 6. January 9th. An ongoing propellant leak is causing the spacecraft's attitude control system, AXE, thrusters to operate well beyond their expected service life cycles to keep the lander from an uncontrollable tumble. If the thrusters can continue to operate, we believe the spacecraft could continue in a stable sun-pointing state for approximately 40 more hours, based on current fuel consumption. At this time, 
The goal is to get Peregrine as close to lunar distance as we can before it loses the ability to maintain its sun-pointing position and subsequently loses power. Update 7. The Peregrine spacecraft has now been operational for about 32 hours. Overnight, the team faced another spacecraft pointing issue, but continues to persevere. The spacecraft started to tilt away from the sun and reduced its solar power generation. The team was able to update the control algorithm and fix this issue. The batteries are at full charge. Given the propellant leak, there is, unfortunately, no chance of a soft landing on the moon. However, we do still have enough propellant to continue to operate the vehicle as a spacecraft. The team has updated its estimates, and we currently expect to run out of propellant in about 40 hours from now, an improvement from last night's estimate. The team continues to work to find ways to extend Peregrine's operational life. We are in a stable operating mode and are working payload and spacecraft tests and checkouts. We continue receiving valuable data and proving spaceflight operations for components and software relating to our next lunar lander mission, Griffin. Update 8. Astrobotics current hypothesis about the Peregrine spacecraft's propulsion anomaly is that a valve between the helium pressurant and the oxidizer failed to reseal after actuation during initialization. This led to a rush of high-pressure helium that spiked the pressure in the oxidizer tank beyond its operating limit and subsequently ruptured the tank. While this is a working theory, a full analysis report will be produced by a formal review board made up of industry experts after the mission is complete. All available data is being downloaded from the lander to support this assessment. ULA's Vulcan rocket inserted Peregrine into the planned translunar trajectory without issue. There is no indication that the propulsion anomaly occurred as a result of the launch. Update 9. A second image showing some of Peregrine's payloads. And yes, uh, Peregrine has been returning some images of the payload, also of one of the rovers. A picture came back of that. And uh, yes, Peregrine is working <laughs> quite well, except for the propulsion system problem. Anyway... Let's continue now here on the Space Show with the sad story of Peregrine with some more of the official releases from the company Astrobotic. Update number 10 for Peregrine Mission 1. Peregrine has been operational in space for 55 hours. We are at an approximate distance of 307,000 kilometers from Earth, which is 80% of the way to lunar distance. Although we are approaching lunar distance, the moon won't be there. We remain on our nominal trajectory for the mission, which includes a phasing loop around Earth. This loop goes out to lunar distance, swings back around the Earth, and then cruises out to meet the Moon. This trajectory reaches the Moon in about 15 days post-launch. Peregrine continues to leak propellant but remains operationally stable and continues to gather valuable data. We estimate that we will run out of propellant in about 35 hours, an improvement on yesterday's update. The team is working around the clock to generate options to extend the spacecraft's life. Update number 11. Peregrine remains stable and fully charged. The spacecraft continues to transmit valuable data. We are now 320,000 kilometers from Earth, which is about 84% of the way to lunar distance. We estimate that the spacecraft has about 36 hours of propellant remaining, Another improvement since this morning. Update number 12. As Peregrine emerges from a planned communications blackout with NASA's DSN ground network, we're pleased to announce the team's efforts to gather payload data have been fruitful. We have successfully received data from all nine payloads designed to communicate with the lander. All ten payloads requiring power have received it, while the remaining ten payloads aboard the spacecraft are passive. These payloads have now been able to prove operational capability in space and payload teams are analyzing the impact of this development now. Update number 13 for Peregrine Mission 1. Since receiving power and telemetry, the IRIS rover payload has sent a message from space. NASA has also released a preliminary science assessment. Two of the payloads, NSS and LETS, are making measurements of the radiation environment in interplanetary space around the Earth and the Moon. 
The two instruments are measuring different components of the radiation spectrum, which provide complementary insights into the galactic cosmic ray activity and space weather resulting from solar activity. This data helps characterize the interplanetary radiation environment for humans and electronics. We currently estimate that the spacecraft has about 48 hours of propellant remaining, which is a significant improvement from yesterday. Our estimates for propellant life expectancy have been changing because the rate of the leak has slowed more than anticipated. A slowing leak rate is expected as the pressure drops, but there may be some change in the size of the propulsion system's rupture as the pressure decreases or some other factor making it difficult to predict. Peregrine has been operating in space for three and a half days. It is now 360,000 kilometers from Earth, which is 94% of lunar distance. Update number 14. Peregrine has now been operational in space for more than four days. The spacecraft remains stable and operational. The leak rate on Peregrine has continued to slow, and the spacecraft is estimated to now have 52 hours of propellant remaining. Our engineers continue to work on solutions to extend life expectancy and there is growing optimism that Peregrine could survive much longer than the current estimate. The payload teams continue to operate and receive power and telemetry from their instruments. Update number 15. Peregrine remains operational at about 381,000 kilometers from Earth, which means that we have reached lunar distance. As we posted in update number 10, the moon is not where the spacecraft is now. Our original trajectory had us arriving at the moon on day 15 post-launch. Our propellant estimates currently have us running out of fuel before this 15-day mark. However, our engineers are still optimistic about extending Peregrine's life expectancy. Update number 16. Over the last week, Astrobotics Mission Control Center has been tracking Peregrine's trajectory. Our analysis effort has been challenging due to the propellant leak, which has been adding uncertainty to predictions of the vehicle's trajectory. Our latest assessment now shows the spacecraft is on a path towards Earth, where it will likely burn up in the Earth's atmosphere. The team is currently assessing options and we will update as soon as we are able. The propellant leak has slowed considerably to the point where it is no longer the team's top priority. A reminder that a soft landing on the moon is not possible. We have now been operating in space for five days and eight hours and are about 387,000 kilometers from Earth. Update number 17. Since the Peregrine Lunar Lander's anomaly occurred six days ago, we have been evaluating how best to safely end the spacecraft's mission to protect satellites in Earth orbit as well as ensure. We do not create debris in cislunar space. Working with NASA, we received inputs from the space community and the U.S. government on the most safe and responsible course of action to end Peregrine's mission. The recommendation we have received is to let the spacecraft burn up during re-entry in Earth's atmosphere. Since this is a commercial mission, the final decision of Peregrine's final flight path is in our hands. Ultimately, we must balance our own desire to extend Peregrine's life, operate payloads, and learn more about the spacecraft, with the risk that our damaged spacecraft could cause a problem in cislunar space. As such, we have made the difficult decision to maintain the current spacecraft's trajectory to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere. By responsibly ending Peregrine's mission, we are doing our part to preserve the future of cislunar space for all. Despite the propulsion system issue, the astrobotic mission team has worked tirelessly to stabilize the vehicle, turn on all active payloads, and enable the collection of payload data. The spacecraft has been operating in space for 6 days and 16 hours, and Peregrine continues to leak propellant, but now at a very slow rate. Yesterday afternoon, we test-fired one of the main engines for the first time. We achieved a 200 millisecond burn and acquired data that indicated Peregrine could have main engine propulsive capability. However, due to the anomaly, the fuel-to-oxidizer ratio is well outside of the normal operating range of the main engines making long-controlled burns impossible. The team projects that the spacecraft has enough remaining propellant to maintain sun-pointing and perform small maneuvers. Peregrine will soon return to Earth's atmosphere and the vehicle is now about 374,000 km away. 
Update number 18. Peregrine has been operational in space for 7 days and 13 hours. The spacecraft continues to be responsive, operational, and stable, and remains on its previously reported trajectory toward Earth's atmosphere. The propellant leak caused by the anomaly has practically stopped. The team continues to work with NASA and U.S. government agencies to assess the final trajectory path in which the vehicle is expected to burn up. Peregrine is now about 349,000 km away from Earth. Update number 19. January 17. The Peregrine spacecraft continues to be responsive and stable and has been operational in space for 8 days and 16 hours. The mission team is continuously monitoring the spacecraft's trajectory back to Earth. We remain in contact with our U.S. government partners to ensure as safe a re-entry path as possible. As a reminder, Peregrine reached Apogee on Saturday and is now about 293,000 kilometers from Earth. And uh, that uh, latest report published uh, earlier today, and the word is that it's going to re-enter the Earth's atmosphere tomorrow, uh, universal time. I'm not sure what time that will be Australian time because they have not published an exact time. The problem is they don't want it to collide with any of the other low-orbiting or geostationary satellites that are in orbit around the Earth. So, sad ending to the Peregrine mission. Meanwhile, Japan's SLIM spacecraft, which was launched on September the 6th last year and went into orbit on Christmas Day, is due to land in two days' time on January the 19th, uh, which will actually be tw- January 20 here in Australia at 2.20 a.m. Australian Eastern Daylight Time. That's when they plan to land. If it can't land then, there's a backup date of February the 16th. So that's the Japanese lander. Hopefully we'll have more luck <laughs> than the American one. This is The Space Show. You're listening to 88.3 Southern FM, The Sounds of the Bayside. Where this is the space show. Do you remember back in 2022, there was a spacecraft called Orion, which was going to be launched from the Kennedy Space Center, it was, um, a, a mission for called Artemis 1. Well, right here in the studio, I've got someone who is actually at the Kennedy Space Center, waiting for that very same rocket to launch. His name is Angelo de Grazia. He is a counselor on the Space Association of Australia. Welcome to the Space Show, Angelo. Well, thanks, Andrew. Thanks to be back again. (laughs) And unfortunately, you missed out seeing it go up. I certainly did. I spent uh, three weeks in the United States, two of which was at the Kennedy Space Center, just waiting for the launch. And unfortunately, uh, they tried, but they aborted twice, which meant uh, I was out of time and out of money and had to come back home. Well, last week, NASA Administrator Bill Nelson and his staff made several announcements about the Artemis two and 3 man missions and they reviewed the Artemis One mission. Let's take a listen to Bill Nelson and what he had to say about that. We're going to give more time on Artemis Two and Three. So what I want to tell you is we are adjusting our schedule to target Artemis Two for September of 2025 and September of 2026 for Artemis three, which will send humans for the first time to the lunar south pole. Artemis four remains on track for September 2028. Uh, Angelo, what was your reaction when you heard Nelson say that? I wasn't surprised. Uh, there's a couple of uh, factors that I thought would influence the decision. The biggest one in my view was the HLS development, the human landing system development. I thought, if anything, that was going to push Artemis 3 out. And in the meantime, some of the problems they were working on on Artemis 2 would also cause a little bit of a a delay, but certainly not to the extent that uh, was, in fact, announced by Bill, Bill Nelson. 
One of the reasons that uh, they gave for the delay was some of the problems they had with Artemis 1, the mission you went to see, but, <laughs> but <missed out. laughs> you saw the spacecraft, but you didn't see it go up. That's right. <laughs> um, one of them was to do with the heat shield. Let's take a listen to that. From the, from the test flight in particular, we had two, I would say, one major finding that's, that's, that we need a little bit more time to work, and that is the performance of the thermal protection system on the spacecraft, on the heat shield. We have an ex- so the the heat shield itself and the and the the Orion um, the the performance uh, specification that we levied on that on the vehicle and on that system was met with uh, met with extreme precision. We we had a large factor of safety at the at the bond line of the spacecraft and our, the entry guidance performed almost perfectly. We were able to, to put the vehicle right on top of our partners in the Navy who were able to recover the vehicle very crisply, but. What we did see in the performance of the of the heat shield itself was some unexpected phenomena that we need to make sure we understand perfectly. The lessons of our history is that even though we believe we understand and that our hardware is performing according to requirements, we have to be absolutely certain that we understand the integrated performance of that system when there are excursions from that performance. What we saw on the heat shield was, uh, again, like I said, very good performance from a thermal protection standpoint we did see the off, the off nominal recession of some char that came off the off the heat shield, which we were not expecting. Now this heat shield is an ablative material; it is supposed to char, but what it's not, what we were not expecting, were some pieces of that char to be liberated from the vehicle. And so we need to make sure we understand the transport and debris transport phenomena that, that caused that. We have spent the bulk of 2023 investigating that. Uh, in facilities across the agency, as well as with help from the DOD. We have an extensive investigation into the root cause of that issue, and it's going very, very well. We have great support from all our industry partners, as well as our our partners across the government. We have taken on a methodical detail campaign to understand this issue, extensive core sampling, testing, and data review, and that is all of that review is, is again, as I said, going, going quite well. We have to synthesize that data and update the overall thermal, mechanical, and material models of that heat shield to make sure that before we, we, we attempt uh, reentry from a circumlunar return mission like we'll have from Artemis II, that we're 100% confident that we understand the performance of that heat shield under those conditions. We've been able to replicate the physics, and we expect it to, definitive, to definitively identify the root cause of this, this recession of the char material, hopefully here in the spring. Now, you must understand that heat shields are very important because the Orion spacecraft, when it returns from the moon, will be slamming into the Earth's atmosphere at 40,000 kilometres per hour. Uh, Angelo, how bad do you think the situation is? Well, it was uh, one of the first issues that was identified after Artemis 1 uh, flight, and so they've had plenty of time to review it. Uh, It's looking like they're going to have a solution over the next few months and then implement that in readiness for Artemis 2, which is not until September of 24. So uh, my feeling is they've got this nailed. They they know the issue. You've got to remember the heat shield is between 25 millimetres to 75 mil- millimetres thick across the, uh, depending on where it is on the heat shield. They had some uneven wearing of the heat shield, Uh but uh, they've progressed uh, quite well in that, and I think that won't be a problem to them. But isn't the Orion 2, Artemis 2 spacecraft, already built? That's funny, because I was thinking the same thing. In fact, they're integrating it as we speak. Uh, the service module and the bits and pieces are getting integrated now. So I'm not quite sure just how they're going to do that, but quite clearly... If the view is that they have to add more material or modify it, they will pull the capsule out to do that. But at the moment, it, there's no word that they're not integrating. Yes. During the, uh, we won't play the audio here, but during the press conference, they were saying that the heat shield lost char uh, just a tiny amount. It was just uh, a, a small amount of the loss. So they could fly. They could decide to fly Artemis II with the existing heat shield. Correct. And it's the issue is all about margin, 
right? It's how much safety factor do you have into these things? And if they do enough analysis and they understand it, they might just allow it to fly. So it might not be a problem, but they understand it, as he was saying in that uh, in that little review. Another issue that came up uh, delaying the Artemis II mission was a problem they had with the life support valves. Let's take a listen. Uh, during the acceptance of some components for Artemis III, we noticed a failure in some motor valve circuitry that's driving valves on the, on the, on the, on the spacecraft itself. This is a common motor, motor drive, drive um, uh, set of circuits that after investigation, this, these components passed acceptance testing for Artemis II but did not pass them for Artemis III. And so that gave us pause to stop and, and look at that circuit in a more detailed way. When we, when we examined it, we recognized that there was a design flaw in that circuit. Those, those valve electronics affect many parts of the life support system on the spacecraft, in particular, our ability, in, in particular the CO2 scrubbing system. And so once, once we recognized that the, the, the design flaw and we, once we looked at rationale for potentially using the system as is, it became very clear to us that it was unacceptable to accept that hardware and we have to replace it in order to guarantee the safety of the crew. The way to replace that hardware, given the current configuration of the spacecraft, uh, we, we're gonna have to, it, it is uh, the access to the, that, those components, the access to those bays is gonna take us quite a bit of, quite a bit of time to get to. Every, every connector that we touch as part of that, as part of that replacement uh, operation will have to be tested after we're done, and we'll have to put the vehicle through full up functional testing afterwards and we're committed to doing that. We know how to fix it. We just need to make sure we take the time to do it according to the workmanship standards that we expect for a human-rated vehicle. So to be clear, Angelo, this is a problem not with the valves themselves, but with the circuits that control them? Correct. And uh, my understanding is that there's a lot to do with software as well. Uh, They do have to change some of the circuitry, uh, which, as he said, will make it difficult to get to. Um, again, we commented about the integration of the spacecraft Artemis II as we speak. Uh, they may have to delay that because of just this particular reason. They have to access the circuitry. It's not so much the valves. The valves, are, there's no problem there that uh, uh, has been alluded to. It's just uh, the electronics and the software. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that he mentioned that it was tested and it passed on Artemis II and the problem identified itself in Artemis three, so uh, did they change the testing regime? And how many other systems have got through without uh, intense testing? It, it, it is a concern. This particular one. Another issue that they raised was the abort system. For the first time on this spacecraft, we are flying an integrated abort capability. Uh, the SLS is a, is a is a is a extremely powerful machine, and the Orion is rated to fly in deep space. And when you when you design a capability to to um, for the Orion to actually separate from the spacecraft from the launch vehicle in the event of a loss of control, that environment during separation is quite severe. We've qualified the entire Orion to survive during those environments. We have, however, as part of that qualification campaign, found a few cases where we, we believe there could be some deficiencies in the performance of the electrical system, in particular, some of the batteries that we need to make sure we understand uh, how they're enduring those environments. So we're still very early in that investigation. We've not yet developed a forward path. We have multiple parallel options to fix this issue. We also have a lot of options to determine whether or not we believe those environments are accurate. And, and we have a lot of testing to do in front of us, but we wanted to make sure we give ourselves the time to do that. And as, as we mentioned before, continuing our analysis, the crew safety is going to d- d- drive our decision-making there on that subject. Angelo, what is the abort system? The abort system is uh, essentially a rocket on top of the capsule that, in case there's an emergency with the SLS, will fire and eject the capsule uh, safely away from a rocket in danger. And uh it's a tricky little, uh, it's not your Apollo-style uh, abort system. It's actually quite a sophisticated little unit. does a few rolls in the sky and moves the spa- spacecraft away from the uh, the rocket. Um, so, it, But it is a vital component 
of um, uh, of the SLS system of Orion system in its entirety. In fact, if you recall back some years ago when the Soyuz uh, had a bit of a was burning at the base of the rocket before launched, their um, abort system fired and pushed the Soyuz capsule away from the rocket. Uh, they were pulling about 12 Gs, I believe, during that fire, but uh, they got out safe and sound. Uh, <laughs> not so safe that they, they were allowed to fly again, those particular astronauts. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, <laughs> they got a bit. I, I think they 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 decided that they couldn't fly them again. Check that out, though. All right. Now, one of the things that you saw when you were there was servicing the rocket on the pad was a problem. It was. Um, in fact, uh, they actually. They had hydrogen leaks. That that was the bottom line to the scrubs that I went to to watch. Uh, they scrub because of hydrogen leaks. Now, hydrogen is the smallest element in the universe, and it's pretty hard to get a seal to stop hydrogen leaking. But when it leaks to beyond uh, you know parameters, um, then it's a problem. Now, they had to fix that on the pad. And to do that, they, they sent people there whilst the rocket was fueled, and they had to build scaffolds and do all sorts of things. So it was a real pain in the neck, uh, the ability to service the SLS uh, if you encounter a problem during a launch event. And to the point, uh, Andrew, where those two attempts cancelled the launch for another two months. Well, they had to think about on-pad servicing, and uh, here's what they had to say. It, even though um, it's, it's, you know, we're, we, we're really, uh, we want to fly and we want to fly as safely as we can. With the delay, we're going to take advantage of some additional capability and a corporation of lessons learned from Artemis One, including the ability to potentially access the vehicle at the pad uh, during, during, um, during the launch campaign and during potential uh, weather events. Our guest here on the space show is Angelo de Grazia from the Space Association of Australia, and we'll continue our conversation in a few moments. 88.3 Southern FM. Here on the space show, we are discussing things about the Artemis moon missions and, if we get time, a bit about SpaceX and uh, Starship. Angelo, we've heard that the Artemis 2 mission is going to be delayed. But what actually is the Artemis II mission? Okay, well, Artemis II is the first crewed flight of the Space Launch System Orion stack. And it's, uh, I liken it to an Apollo 13 repeat, uh, without the explosion, of course. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're hoping that doesn't happen. But essentially, it's a, uh, they're on a free return trajectory, in other words. Uh, but it's a little bit more complex than that. They have what's called multi-translunar injection, uh, they build up their orbit to the moon, and then once they get into the Earth, uh, into the moon's influence, gravity influence, they then swing by the, room, the moon in a uh, free return tra trajectory and come back to Earth. There'll be th four astronauts, three are NASA astronauts, and one is Canadian. And uh, I had the fortune of meeting two of those people when I was at uh, NASA for the uh, aborted first oh, attempt. Please tell us. Oh yeah, uh, well you know Victor Glover, he's the uh, the the black uh, astronaut there, and he's uh, a terrific guy. Um, but it was hard to get any information of what was going on at the time because uh, all the astronauts spin NASA lingo, speak spin NASA speak. They won't tell you exactly what's going on. They'll tell you what they are told to tell you so victor victor was a good spin artist but he was he was a nice bloke the canadian guy jeremy hansen he's uh he's a he's a cool fella and uh it's good to see you know one of our our brothers go up uh on that mission it uh it's an important mission uh the mission specialist will be christina cox she's uh, uh you know flown before and she's uh well-traveled, as uh, the commander is Reed Wiseman. For so, a time, she held the American record for she did. Uh, time and space. She did. She did. It's a 10-day mission. So Artemis II uh, will, for the first time since Apollo 17, actually go to the moon. Then we get to Artemis III. That's the actual lunar mission. Now, uh, I'm pretty confident with the 
timeline for Artemis II, which is September next year. Uh, but NASA described the Artemis III reschedule as aggressive, uh, which is uh, code for, I don't think we're going to get that date. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's take a listen to the choreography that's planned for Artemis III, and then we can discuss it. So I'll move on to Artemis III. Um, for Artemis III, we're adding several new capabilities. Of course, it's been mentioned by Jim, we're adding a human landing system uh, with, a, with a very uh, complex uh, propellant transfer scheme and earth departure scheme. We're also adding advanced spacesuits. Each one of these spacesuits is an individual spacecraft for the crew, and we're adding a docking system to Orion and new choreography amongst, amongst our launch teams for a dual launch campaign required to make sure that both Orion and the lander can get to the same point in space and to proceed with, with the lunar landing. So the coordination and the choreography of those ground assets, as well as in space and other communication assets, is a significant coordination challenge, and we're doing everything we can to add tests and to add capability to make sure that that's successful. There's extensive integration going on across those systems. One of, not, not one of these elements, we have all the transportation elements we've been developing, but, but, but with the suits and with the lander, that's a, that's a huge a conglomeration of, of different development activities that have to meet together, and not any single one of them is more important than the other. We need them all to be ready and all to be successful in order for that very complicated mission to, to come together. It seems to me there's uh, lots of chance for failure. Any one of those links? There's been a few people who have started to raise their hands about the complexity of this mission. It is so complicated you couldn't have picked a more complex architecture to get to the moon it requires some incredible technology to do it uh, for starters they have to develop a human landing system and that's spacex and it's based on starship uh, it's the biggest risk and probably the pacing factor to that particular first landing on the moon um they then have to fly the uh, actual Artemis, uh, the Orion capsule, to a near rectilinear halo orbit, which is a, another weird uh, complication. Uh, they have to actually get the human landing system into orbit, then refuel it. Now, there's a, a real debate on how many missions it's going to take of Starship to fly to refuel the rocket. Uh, if you listen to Elon Musk... He'll tell you anything from four to eight missions. If you listen to some people at NASA, it could go anything up to 15 Starship flights. I'm serious. To fill up the tanker that will be waiting in orbit to fill up the human landing system so that it can uh, head off to the moon. Um, it is a very, very complicated, complex system. Well, let's take a listen to what NASA says about these refueling flights. Bill Harwood from CBS News. Uh, yeah, thank you very much. Can someone address for us uh, how many refueling flights you guys think is going to be required to get HLS from LEO to the moon? You know, there's been everything said from people on the Hill from flights in the teens uh, to just four. I don't really understand why. I mean, I realize it's variable. I mean, you're in the process of planning all this and the numbers may change. But can someone please ballpark this for us, give us a better idea of just how challenging it is uh, to, to work all this out. Thanks. Yes, sure, Bill. It's a great, it's a great question. I, I'd like uh, Jessica Jensen from SpaceX to, to take that. She's been involved heavily in the development. What I would say is, um, just to start with, that, you know, that they have been, SpaceX has been extremely transparent with us, and we've been sharing a, a lot of data with them about our own challenges in terms of cryogenic refueling. Um, and, you know, so much of this is just going to have to come from flight tests. And I think the re probably the reason why you're hearing different numbers is because we have a lot of different modeling and, and analysis iterations that are going on to do that. But the, but the, but the rubber is going to meet the road when we actually try and do this in orbit. But I'd like to – I'll hand over to Jessica to see if she's got anything else to add. Yeah, thanks, Amit. One of the things I want to clarify is propellant transfer in orbit, it sounds complex and scary, and it seems like this kind of big nebulous thing. But when you really break it down into the various pieces, we've actually achieved almost all of the complex parts already on our operational programs now. And it's just going to be piecing them together for Starship. So, for example, you know, we've docked, we've birthed or docked Dragons, the International Space Station, more than 30 times. 
So everything we've learned from the sensors we use, the algorithms we use for, you know, safe rendezvous from pulling back, all of that, we're going to leverage all of that in having two starships docked together. Another big thing that I think can seem very intimidating is, you know, launching missions in close proximity to each other to be able to achieve, you know, rapid refueling. And on Falcon 9, you know, we're able to launch missions within a few hours of each other. Pad turnarounds have gotten very short. We can even launch off the same pad within a few days of each other. So, again, we're going to leverage those capabilities that we've learned onto Starship. And then the last bit is, you know, the cryogenic propellant transfer part of it. So, again, that is where we're working um, ground tests right now. And a lot of what we do for cryogenic propellant transfer on the ground, translating that to what we do up in space. And what's so great about this is because we'll be doing it through a flight test perspective, we'll learn on the flight first flight test, you know, how much propellant is actually transferred versus what we predict. We can make changes then on the ground for the next flight and iterate, and that will actually wind up determining how many missions we need. But even if it's an expensive amount of missions, we have all the capabilities and have already proven them through other vehicles that we will be able to do what Artemis 3 needs. Jessica, this is Bill Nelson. But the question was, how many fuel transfers? Hi, Bill. Yes. So I will say it will roughly be 10-ish. That would be my rough guess right now, but it could be lower depending on how well the first flight tests go, or it could be a little bit higher. Uh, <laughs> she doesn't know. Uh, I, look, I commend Bill Nelson for, for asking the, the obvious question. Please answer the question. And uh, they know. They know, they just don't want to say. Because Elon has come out and said a few numbers, and she's certainly not going to stand there and say or, or be give a contrary opinion to what Elon has said. But the truth is, she's downplaying it. She's saying all our Earth experience will, uh, will easily adapt to space environment. I find that hard to believe, to be honest. And, uh, and uh, NASA are rightly concerned about the technical difficulties of um, refueling in space. And without refueling in space, there is no Artemis three mission. Here's what Elon Musk said at Boca Chica, which you've been to yep. <laughs> um, two days ago. Here's what he said about this. So we also want to demonstrate on-orbit refilling. This is very important for the NASA Artemis program. So we're very proud to be part of the NASA Artemis program. I'm always in incredibly grateful to NASA for their support and for trusting us to do to take astronauts to orbit, to take cargo to the space station, and to be an integral part of getting astronauts back to the moon. Well, do we believe Elon and SpaceX, or do we believe the skeptics? Look, um, some people accuse me of being a SpaceX fanboy, and sometimes I am. Sometimes I'm very critical of uh, SpaceX, but... Um, uh, they certainly have a challenge up for themselves uh, in two two areas. The refueling is not going to be as easy as they think it is. Uh, they have to, the, the the second risk is actually to get Starship to fly and fly reliably, especially if you need ten to twelve missions to do refueling. And the third thing is they've got to the, get the human landing system developed. Now, if you listen to the news uh, casts about it, and there's not a lot. Uh, you know, things are going well. Uh, SpaceX keep meeting their milestones, et cetera, et cetera. But these are really high-risk, high, high, risk, high complex uh, things that uh, may not play out as people expect. Now, we've been talking about Starship. Here's what Elon Musk had to say two days about his Starship. The Starship is more than twice the thrust of a Saturn V. It is by far the biggest flying object ever made. And for, you know, with, with some upgrades down the road, it'll, it'll actually be, I think, probably over 20 million pounds of thrust. And Saturn V is seven and a half. So it'll, it'll end up being three times the thrust of Saturn V. And it's going to fly a lot. It has to fly a lot. So it's going to end up flying several times a day from many different locations in the world. And I think there's a pretty good chance that it does Earth-to-Earth -earth transport as well. Because the fastest way to get from one place to another on Earth is, you know, to get from here to the other side of Earth is an intercontinental ballistic missile. But just make sure you delete the nuke and add the landing part, basically. <laughs> Elon Musk, you must admit he has a bit of a sense of humour. <laughs> oh, you're a wicked one, yes. <laughs> okay, Angelo, more about Starship, please. Well, 
uh, Starship as uh, just to bring everyone up to speed. The first flight of Starship was the 20th of April of 23. So they flew it for the first time, got permission to to do it, and they basically uh, wrecked the whole process by flying it prematurely. And it probably did them more harm than good by doing that because uh, if you can recall, they dug a bit of a crater in uh, at the launch pad that uh, flew all the way to uh, South Lab Padre Island, which is some five kilometres away. So it didn't do them very uh, good service by doing that. And then it got the FAA ears to prick up because they've already got issues because people are protesting about it. So they flew um, IFT or uh, test flight number two in November of 23. lot better. They introduced hot staging, and all 33 engines worked on this occasion. So now we're waiting for the third flight, which is estimated to be uh, next month. Oh, we look forward to that. Now, here's a little clip of Elon Musk's attitude towards firing off lots of things and losing them. Uh, for any given technology development, there it is, you know, how many iterations do you have and what is the amount of time between each iteration? So every time we launch, we learn, every time we launch or do a test, we, we learn something more. So increasing that cadence of launching and testing. And it's always better to sacrifice hardware rather than sacrifice time. Like time is the, true, the one true currency. So it's sort of the fastest path to, as I was saying earlier, rapidly reusable, reliable rocket. Well, Angelo... We're pretty much run out of time here on the space show tonight. Any final words? Uh, no, other than 2024 is going to probably be the biggest year in space since the moon landing. So uh, look out for it. It's going to be a great year. Oh, great. And uh, look, you've got so much more to come to talk about. Can you come back next week and uh, have another chat with us about what's happening with SpaceX and uh, the moon missions. No problem. Thanks, Andrew. Well, you have been listening to The Space Show. I'm Andrew Rennie. And just quick mention of our meeting of the Space Association at the Bentley RSL this coming Monday between 6.30 and 9 p.m. at the Bentley RSL, which is at Centre Road, very near the intersection with Jasper Road. And... um, the topic will be the Russian space program, which, yes, is still still going on. I'm Andrew Rennie for the Space Association of Australia.